sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast Warning, the following program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officials, dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. And this program would be environmental as anything. Thank you for joining us again today for all the news, analysis, and interviews that we can cram in for our planet Earth. Huge day, as always, uh, this week. There's been uh, a lot going on. There's been a big week in Parliament uh, with the uh, EPBC, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act review being uh, being well being buried by the uh, the scum regime, and the CEFC, the uh, Clean Energy Finance Corporation, being turned into the Dirty Finance uh, Energy Finance Corporation with the uh, fossil fuel takeover uh, by uh, the scum regime of that uh, important uh, institution. And, of course, the uh, donations corruption. Why would any of that be going on without it? We'll be talking to David Morris from the Environmental Defenders uh, Office, uh, who is uh, going to be giving us a report on their uh, all of the what's been going on for them over the last uh, few months, really, and what's coming up. So uh, it was uh, quite, a, quite an action-packed interview, that one, so something to look forward to there. Also action-packed and more local is the bushfire fund rorts scandal, which is rocking the New South Wales government, like, uh, well, like so many things seem to rock the New South Wales government, uh, with uh, Porky Barillaro saying that pork barrelling is perfectly normal and uh, we should all just accept it. Uh, but we have uh, Janelle Saffin, the local member for Lismore, and also uh, Tamara Smith, the member for Ballina, speaking on the impact that the pork barrelling uh, or the, uh, the bushfire uh, recovery rorting has had on our electorates here on the Northern Rivers. Um, th- we've got Susie Russell talking to us about the legal case which was recently completed by the uh, North Coast Environment Council uh, with the EPA uh, standing up for the right of Cape Byron Power to keep secret how much of our forests they are actually throwing into their furnaces. Um, I'm hoping that we'll get uh, to the eco news from Mia Armitage in the community newsroom. And, uh, oh, look, it's just there's just endless amounts of... Um, of course, before we do anything, uh, we should say thank you, especially to the Bunjalung Nation for hosting us here in their country. Uh, this land was never ceded and we respect uh, elders past, present and emerging. And uh, we are very happy to be working hard to try to clean up the mess that's been made by our forebears here in uh, the Widgibal Wyable uh, country. Thanks for joining Environmental As Anything. Uh, if you've been missing us, of course, we have our podcast up and running and uh, that's, uh, that's t- terrific. Uh, you know, you can always catch up with the original content that we produce each week here. 
And, oh, oh that's right, of course, not to be forgotten, never to be forgotten, is uh, Naomi. She's going to come in and shine a bit of light on the local environment scene for us from the perspective of the uh, Lismore Environment Centre. So looking forward to having Naomi uh, l- later on in the show. For the last half hour, we'll be looking forward to having Naomi come in to talk about events and actions that people can take and, uh, you know, just the news of the week uh, from a local perspective. <laughs> I've been, like, obviously, I just mentioned our podcast. That's great. We also have a Facebook page. Um, like a lot of people, we uh, we put a lot of time and energy into trying to share news uh, with others in our community. Uh, I've invested money, in fact, from time to time in Facebook's, yeah. uh, you know, system for uh, for. for, for Paying them for the privilege of sharing our content around. To promote issues that we think are really important. Indeed, Mm. indeed. Mm. And it's not a, it's, but, but of course, Facebook, well, our Facebook page has has managed to slide b- below the radar. I think at this point, we I haven't noticed it having been uh, taken down, but just about everything else has been. So um, it's a bit of a shame. We now know, if we were in any doubt of it before, that we can't trust Facebook to be our paperboy. Uh, you know, Facebook's disgraceful behaviour in cutting off Aussies' access to independent community and public service news distribution this week highlights the need for the establishment of a publicly funded social media network to foster and protect the sharing of free and accurate news and information. I mean, we need an open standards-based subscription-funded social media platform, preferably one that's developed under an open source model, distributed rather than centralised and publicly funded, not corporate-owned. Like email, you know, a system that's open for anyone to develop apps that adhere to the standards one that's not designed to be as addictive as crack, Mm. one where the user controls the algorithm, a platform that flourishes on unifying rather than polarising humans, one that uh, elevates truth and diminishes lies. I mean, while we're at it, we might as well build it so it's secure. So anyone who posts content to it knows they own that content and that their privacy is not for sale unless Mm. they choose to sell it. So we can all use it safely, knowing that everyone there who that is who they say they are and that they adhere to community norms and standards of honesty and civility. I mean, it's pretty funny that Facebook have claimed for ages that they can't filter out fake news, but they've just overnight done a pretty good job of filtering out the real thing. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> along, right. I mean, along with official and community channels. If, yeah. if Facebook wants to take a stand about paying for news, it should just filter out all the news corps and yeah. nine content. Yeah. Let us access all the excellent free independent community and public broadcast m- media that we actually need. If they'd done that... They would have been seen as the heroes of the day mm. instead of the ham-fisted bullies they've just proven themselves to be. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's not all Facebook's fault. The scum regime's grovelsome efforts to impose a news-limited tariff have been blatantly corrupt and incompetent. I mean, if we're going to get government intervention into our media sphere, it should be to fund fact-checking and independent investigative journalism, not to prop up Uncle Rupert's criminal empire. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, that's just uh, been uh, burning a hole in my brain, so I thought I'd share it with you. 
<laughs> yes, I think it is important to understand that this whole thing was purely and utterly as a result of Rupert Murdoch lobbying this government. Yeah. That this government isn't doing it because they're worried about, you know, various news outlets missing out on uh, revenue. Mm. It was done purely and utterly at the bidding of Rupert Murdoch, yeah. as so much is. As so much is. Well, mm. I mean, you know, it's a mistake to think of the scum regime as being the Australian government, I think. It's the mm. Rupert Murdoch. It, yes. but it's, it's the government of Rupert Murdoch. You know, and the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, that's right. He yeah. speaks. He speaks for and and on you know on behalf of the the fossil fuel industry and pushes their interests mercilessly yes. down our necks. Yep. And uh, now we've got this situation where uh, oh, when they're you know his free market economics. Well, who needs that? We'll just have the the, the Kim Jong Il. We'll have the North Korean model. Thanks. Mm. You know, we'll just have the have Uncle Rupert tell us what's good and and just and we'll just we'll just swallow that whenever he says to. Anyway, look, I feel much better now having got that off my chest. Thanks very much for listening in. This is Environmental As Anything. We are, I'm Sean and this is Meg. Hello. This is Environmental As Anything. I'm Sean and I've got, I just did an interview yesterday with Susie Russell. Susie is the Secretary of the North Coast Environment Council. Susie and the NCEC have been fighting for our environment for decades now. And uh, this uh, late, the latest, one of their latest actions has been to take the EPA to court to try to force them to give over information about the Cape Byron Power Company, uh, which, is, uh, which plans to feed our forests into its furnaces and call it renewable energy. That's at the Condong Mill and Broadwater Mill. They're doing that just uh, on both sides, north and south of Lismore. So... Might as well just uh, let Susie speak for herself. Here she is, Susie Russell. Susie Russell, thank you for joining Environmental as Anything again today. Pleasure, Sean. So uh, we, I wanted to speak to you particularly about the recent uh, decision in the uh, Civil Administrative Tribunal regarding uh, the application for the review of your, the decision about the, the EPA refusing to give access uh, to the North Coast Environment Council um, to information about the, uh, the Byron Power Company. What's going on there? Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? It is. <laughs> so basically the, um, what they call, uh, they call themselves the Cape Byron Power Company. They haven't really got anything to do with um, Cape Byron, of course, but it makes it sound green. Um, they um, run two power plants, one at uh, Condong um, in the Tweed and one at Broadwater in the Richmond Valley where they burn significant amounts of wood. So initially when they started out, they were going to burn sugarcane waste and, of course, now what happens is that um, for most of the year they burn, waste. Uh, they, they burn wood. And our um, concern has always been where is that wood going to come from and how much wood is actually being burnt. And there was um, a requirement for them, the, the power company, to tell the EPA how much wood they were burning and where they were getting it from. And when we applied for that information under the Freedom of Information laws, we got documents that had been largely blacked out where... Um, firstly, it, it was clear that they hadn't 
been providing monthly reports like they were required to. There were whole years that were missing. Um, and secondly, um, the information that we wanted, which was basically how much wood is, um, is going in there, was considered to be uh, commercial in confidence. And so that wasn't provided. So we challenged that in the New South Wales Civil Administrative Tribunal and it went to a hearing um, at the end of last year and we got the result back last week, which was that the, um, the tribunal member who makes the decision basically decided in favour of the EPA that the EPA was right not to release that information to us because uh, the main argument was that the if the information was public, then the company's uh, suppliers and competitors would be able to um, use that information to get leverage over the company. And so although the release of the information was in the public interest, there was a sort of a greater interest, if you like, in favour of the company that said, no, that information shouldn't be made public. So we're kind of back where we started. So commercial interest, Trump public interest yet again, and uh, Kate Byron Power gets to carry on secretly doing whatever it's doing without reporting according to its uh, obligations, apparently. Well, well, that's right. Well, the, the rules have now changed where they don't have to report. Oh, how convenient. So, I mean, back, yeah, back in the day they had, to, they had to report, but now they don't have to report. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I mean, as time goes by, the sort of oversight uh, processes become more and more uh, relaxed. Uh, and, of course, that makes it a lot easier for wood from all over the place to uh, go to the power station. So we, we sort of had this angle because we were after the wood that was particularly relating to uh, well, first of all, we wanted all the wood, but then uh, that was sort of knocked out. And then we said, look, we want the native forest volumes um, because they're, they're burning wood from both native forests and plantations. And uh, the plantation angle seemed to be, you know, be something that they can more or less do, that there's no requirements. There were no requirements for reporting. So we, we sort of weren't going to be able to get that. But... Um, even where, uh, for example, there were, was a big housing development in Queensland and there was a big dam in, under construction, the Hins Dam in Queensland, and all of the wood from those clearing, from those developments, went to these power stations to be burnt. Um, and we know that it was many, many, many truckloads um, over a period of months. Um, I think in the case of the dam, it, went, it was over a period of years. But... Unfortunately, we, we couldn't find out just how much. Um, so... Uh, nothing to see here. Nothing, nothing to see here. So it's, it's one of those things where um, uh, the, the sort of the amount of wood being burned is, is, seems to be some sort of a secret. Um, one would think that if you were confident in your so-called green credentials... Um, you know, you'd be public about how much is going in and how much emissions are coming out and all the rest of it. But it's interesting, there's a few websites around where a number of power stations put in quite a lot of information about how much electricity is being generated at any particular time, all that sort of thing. 
but those two power stations don't play ball and that information isn't available. It's a, it seems to be a very secretive operation, really. They're very, they're very sensitive. Very hard to believe their environmental uh, claims if they're not willing to be open about them. But on the EPA and uh, burning forests or burnt forests, apparently uh, there's been some conflict between the EPA and Forestry Corporation and uh, the EPA is warning that... Uh, that the forest corps might uh, face regulatory action after accusing it from walking away from negotiations. Do you know what's going on there? That, well, that's because after the bushfires from 2019-2020 that um, destroyed such an extensive area of forests all down the coast, northern New South Wales, southern New South Wales, you would probably be aware that the fires, by the time they got to southern New South Wales, it was a month or so after they'd gone through the north, they were hotter, um, the weather was hotter, uh, they were more extreme really, and um, the damage in terms of a lot of those forests being completely destroyed uh, and, and having very little regrowth is an absolute tragedy. So the EPA, after the fires, for both North and South, said, look, you can't just resume business as usual. There has to be some reassessment of the licence conditions for logging and uh, began what were sort of called site-specific um, logging rules to say, well, in this area, you might have to take this into account. Um, and that negotiation process over areas to be logged has been going on since then, so for about a year. And... Uh, forestry have walked away from that negotiation and said, no, we're just going to, we're just going to keep logging now. We're not going to have any special conditions. And, um, and EPA are saying, well, look, you know, you could be open to some sort of regulatory action. Well, seeing is believing on the scale that's required. I mean, clearly, if the EPA are going to be the defenders of the environment and forestry are going to thumb their nose at the regulator and say, well, regardless of the fact that what the damage was generational, that many species have lost habitat that will take hundreds of years to recover, some will take decades, um, and yet forestry thinks they can just go back and do the same old, same old one year down the track. Um, hopefully the EPA will have the gumption to say, well, you know, no, um, we're going to we're going to prosecute. Mm. But yeah. of course, we've seen in the past one arm of government's very reluctant to take the other arm of government to court. <laughs> Understandably so, I suppose. Well, yeah. look, thank you, Susie, for clarifying all that for us. We're, we're about out of time, but uh, that's uh, that's it's very helpful. Um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that, and uh, maybe you'll keep us posted with developments. Sure, will. Thank you so much. That was Susie Russell from the North Coast Environment Council uh, speaking to us about the uh, various different aspects of burning forests uh, going on, uh, you know, in secret and uh, with, uh, with, with, you know, the connivance of uh, the, the, the Porky Barilaro and, mm. the, and the rest of the Koala Killer faction of the, mm. of the coalition. Uh, it's uh, it's a disgrace. It is, and Michael West uh, directly said on LinkedIn that uh, that this was um, specifically Barilaro telling Forest Corp that he wanted those timber quotas filled, 
Yeah. Um, so um, uh, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Barilaro is the Minister for Forests and um, mm. uh, clearly he's got more uh, interest in um, the timber industry than he has in the forests. Certainly has more interest in the timber industry than he does in the truth mm. Um, mm. and, you know, proper procedures and uh, good yeah. governance yeah. and these kinds of trivial matters. Are no, not not for the likes of uh, Porky Barilaro. Yeah. He just uh, rolls straight over the top of them apparently. Mm. Uh, I think I've got that article here from uh, a mate, uh, Pax, uh, Pax Chirios, who uh, still still sending me links uh, through the... Uh, through the back channels. Uh, Facebook can't stop us from sharing everything. No, that's right. Uh, but he says, uh, Barilaro overrules EPA, ramps up logging, funnels bushfire grants to loggers uh, by Sue Arnold. So there's an article there on, oh, uh, on Michael West Media if people want to look it up. Yeah. Uh, what's it say? Despite unprecedented damage to forests and wildlife, New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barilaro overruled the Environment Protection Agency and determined that industrial-scale logging continues in New South Wales burnt and unburnt forests. Susan Arnold reports on the extraordinary protections afforded the forestry industry by the government of Gladys Berejiklian. Another absolute champion, Sue Arnold. Absolutely. Brilliant. Yes, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Work. Good on Susie you, Susie Sue. Russell and uh, Sue Arnold, Good. two of my really favourite heroes. Well, well, we're, we're doing all right then if, we're, if we've managed to be, rack up two heroes in a row. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Greens member for the New South Wales Upper House, David Shoebridge, has recently done some investigation into how the state government's $177 million bushfire local economic recovery grant scheme has been distributed. The results reflect a broader political pattern across the country commonly referred to as either rorts or pork barrelling. Mr Shoebridge's data analysis shows all the money spent across the 71 projects, the Lismore and Cessnock electorates, both held by Labor and both badly impacted by bushfire, only received $2.5 million between them. You may remember the Blue Mountains was again the scene of dramatic fires, yet the Labor-held electorate received nothing. Meanwhile, in the Greens held Balanair electorate in the north of the state, economic impacts were valued at $88 million, yet none of the recovery money has made it here. So what sort of projects missed out on funding? Bay FM's community newsroom host, Mia Armitage, asked New South Wales Greens member for Balanair, Tamara Smith. I can't tell you that, Mia, because the most bizarre part about this is that nobody knew about the grants. So again, it reminds me of the club grants. So basically, you try figuring out how an open and transparent method for Club New South Wales grants. The first thing it says is make friends with your local Nationals MP. So this is exactly the same. The Deputy Premier, the Nationals leader, reached out, handpicked mates' rates all of these grants and asked each MP, tell me what shovel-ready projects you've got. Some of them, as we saw in the Sydney Morning Herald, are for a for-profit skydiving business. 337000 to Karuba Wines in the Snowy Valley to extend the existing cellar door. Meanwhile, in Byron Shire and Ballina Shires, there was a $90 million economic impact. The Black Summer bushfires was just before Christmas, only a couple of months away from the beginning of the pandemic. Massive impacts on tourism and the decline 
and then in terms of local supply chain. Why wasn't our community given an opportunity? We were very fortunate in the sense that there were evacuations, but no homes were lost. But in Lismore, that was not the case. Even if you think maybe that $90 million impact somehow we're expected to just recover. When I look at Lismore and the impacts on Lismore in terms of believe over 100 homes were lost, you have to think that this is politically motivated. Are you saying that there's not actually a public list or your office hasn't even received a list of people or businesses or non-for-profits in your electorate who have applied for these grants? To the best of my knowledge, Mia, nobody in my electorate was aware that there was any grant to apply for for the first round. So the only time anyone's become aware of it is the announcement of those grants. The Deputy Premier has reached out to the seats that missed out, member for Blue Mountains, the member for Gosford and the member for Lismore and mentioned me and saying, okay, how can we help? And we're all saying, uh, no, we don't want to get money that is not fair and open and transparent. And what we've seen on the floor is the opposition and ourselves crossbench getting heckled by the government who are saying, what are you saying? People's homes were lost, thousands of homes were lost. I'm scanning down this list and I can't see any money that is for homes and ordinary people who are affected by the bushfires. This is all big business. And yes, of course, we should be investing in regional communities to grow jobs, etc. but do it in an open and transparent way. So the second round, which only closed a week ago, I'm vaguely aware of some projects that have applied. And as you would expect, Mia, I don't know anything about them, and that's how it should be. It should be an independent panel that assesses the merit on merit and that it has nothing to do with me. The community building partnership grants, some sports grants, local MPs are able to make a recommendation and that's a very small amount of money each year, but we're talking $250 million. And the projects that I'm aware of in the Ballina electorate, you know, we think may have applied, all of those speak to building resilience for the community. I haven't seen or heard of any for-profit business that is thinking that they can get money under this. What I heard about was, you know, community-owned renewables looking at how they can build resilience on a warming planet. So I'm assuming then that if you wanted to find out which particular groups in your electorate have received funding under any particular grant scheme, you would have to go through more or less the same procedures that a journalist would have to go through. Yeah, the list that I have in front of me was obtained through GIPA, through Freedom of Information. That's how secretive it is. John Barillaro has said projects had to be costed at at least a million dollars to qualify. Other groups who have applied or were interested in applying said that they didn't see that criterion or any criteria anywhere. I went to the website. There is some criteria up on the website. The projects could be a minimum of $20,000. So have you learned any more about any kind of criteria through the inquiry? I'm writing a submission at the moment to the inquiry because exactly what you've just said, Mia, it is incoherent. The proper administration of public funds should be extreme in its transparency. Greens New South Wales are going to be taking to the next state election and even to local government elections 
a whole new way of thinking about grants. We think they should be done away with. It may not be needs-based because that would be too extreme, probably too socialist, but somewhere in between pure needs-based funding and what we have today. Each party is represented on that inquiry and in, on that committee, and they apparently are unanimous in saying that the way that grants are administered in New South Wales is unacceptable and has to change. When we hear the premiers say that pork barrelling is not illegal, pork barrelling is what everyone does, basically she said that's what elections are for. That's disgraceful. Elections are about democracy. That was New South Wales Greens member for Ballina, Tamara Smith, speaking with Bay FM's community newsroom reporter, Mia Armitage. Alongside the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry, the Leader of the Opposition has introduced a bill making it illegal to destroy documents the way the Premier's office has admitted to doing recently. We'll be sure to try to keep you posted on how that goes in Parliament. In fact, without further ado, here is David Shoebridge, who is a New South Wales Member of the Legislative Council and Chair of the Public Accountability Committee of the New South Wales Parliament, speaking to our Deputy Premier, John Porky Barillaro, about where the money actually did go and how he feels about how that affected the people who's, who are still homeless after those bushfires to this day. And there are still people in regional New South Wales who haven't got a home, still living in tents and caravans. You accept that after? No, I disagree with that. I, I, you know, there are many people that have chosen to live in a particular way on sites. We've offered everybody accommodation options, including the partnership with Mindaroo. So, so you're telling me that the people who are still living on their properties, haven't got their house rebuilt in a caravan, have chosen to do that? Well, they may not have insurance. They may not have the ability to rebuild. Correct. Yes, but we, we've offered them accommodation options and some have, decided, so, no, no, some have decided to stay on their land. Why? Because they might have livestock. Some have decided to stay on their land because it's their neighbourhood where their schools go, the kids go to school or their, their friendship groups. Compelling personal reasons to stay on That's their right. property, right? Absolutely. And they still haven't got a house. Well, some, are, some are uninsured and you accept that. Yeah, they're uninsured. So what, sorry. Do you, so what do you say to them, those people? about the $10 million of bushfire local economy um, relief that didn't go to them but went to a multinational corporation like Visicorp. How do you say to them, you haven't got a home, mm. we're not funding your home, but I'm going to give $10 million mm. of bushfire relief yeah. to a hugely profitable multinational? Yeah. How do you explain that? Well, firstly, I think, I think your question comes with bias because you're anti-forestry, <clears throat> so I'm going to say that up front. That was... Porky Barillaro, responding with all the empathy to be expected of a man who refers to koalas as tree rats, to the plight of people whose homes were burnt down in the climate emergency bushfires that the National Party's climate policies helped to end. Janelle Safin is the representative for the New South Wales seat of Lismore. I spoke to her this week about the Bushfire Recovery Fund rort scandal and the potential for a koala-led recovery. Janelle, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. Thank you, Sean. Um, good to be here. I've been following with some interest the shenanigans around the Bushfire Local mm -hmm. Economic Recovery Fund. We've just played an, an interview that was done earlier with uh, uh, Tamara Smith. 
mm-hmm. uh, about the Ballina electorate. So I wanted to get your perspectives on how Lismore has fared. How much damage did we suffer here in the Lismore electorate uh, from the, the recent climate emergency bushfires? Uh, how much did we apply for in terms of funding to get that recovery under the way? Mm-hmm. And how much did we ever receive and what's been done with it? Sure. So 35% of electorates bushfire affected and they got 1% of the grants of $177 million. And what's disgraceful is it was not advertised. There was no known criteria. Local MPs were not contacted and members of parliament in coalition seats, nationals and liberals, were announcing the projects before the formal announcement of the whole lot of them. So the whole issue is shrouded in lack of transparency, secrecy, um, favouritism. It was treated like a private fund Mm. and it's public money. Mm. You know, that's the issue. Lismore Electorate got $2 million that was for some two timber industry projects in Kyogle. It was treated like a secret fund. Mm-hmm. $177 million. And so you didn't find out you didn't find out about those two million dollars, those two two projects until after they were granted. Is that the way it worked? That's right. That's right. Found out, you know, after the event, and most people did. It was just another example of an absolute absence of good government mm-hmm. and also sort of thumbing noses at, at people. We we expect proper behaviour from the government. We expect transparency. We expect, you know, it to be treated like a public fund. Mm. So really, really surprising yes, that this indeed. happened. Lismore was quite seriously affected by the fires. I'm sure that there were many electorates which were more severely impacted, but we must have, there must be some figures on how much damage was done in the Lismore electorate here. Of course, we were impacted in a whole range of ways with, millions and millions of dollars and you know all of us put forward said look particularly with the land we could do some really good rebuilding and repairing of the land here some of that money could have come to that we didn't see any of it it's just wrong Mm. and John Barillaro the deputy premier he um, prides himself on being pork Barillaro it's not funny it really isn't funny it's not really funny, is it? When he comes out and says that uh, that's what elections are for, is for pork barrelling, it, it really is very revealing about the culture that he is, uh, he is leading within the National Party, isn't it? It is. And I've said I expect that from authoritarian governments, mm. <laughs> from dictator governments. Mm. I don't expect that from a democratic government. Mm. And you can say, oh, everyone does a bit of pork barrelling. That's not good enough. None of us should do it. And it should be on merit. It should be an open process so that we all know about it. And So what will the Labor Party do differently? How will you change things uh, from, from, I know you're in opposition, but how would you change uh-huh. if you're in government? Well, make sure that public funding is absolutely subject to a public process. You don't treat public funding 176. So making sure that the, the governance, the right governance in place and that, you know, everyone's at arm's length from it and people have to, it's advertised, people put in their projects and then you work it out, I would say, on a, a damage basis, an impact basis, you know, with a project, you know, like this, a program like this. But yeah, that's what the Labor Party would do. 
Speaking of uh, projects uh, which can lead mm -hmm. to economic recovery, uh, the Great Koala National Park has recently mm -hmm. had an economic impact assessment and environmental benefit analysis done through mm -hmm. the uh, University of Newcastle's Hunter Research Foundation by uh, Professor mm -hmm. uh, Roberta Ryan, a lead, oh, lead yes. Yep. And uh, they found that uh, if they implemented the Great Koala National Park, that they would create 9,800 additional full-time jobs in that region and yep. a new investment in the region of $145 million and a potential uh, increase in regional economic output of $1.2 billion uh, and an additional uh, $1.7 billion in ecological values which would be created by mm -hmm. uh, the establishment of that national park. So is the Labor Party going to get behind the Great Koala National Park and the Sandy Creek Koala Park, which have been proposed? We did um, back the Great um, Koala National Park in the lead-up to the election, and there's a lot of support. That support still exists within the Labor Party that's been clear around the Koala Park. and we, So we've been really clear on that, and we need to settle it once and for all. We keep having this endless debate. I don't know anyone who doesn't support koalas <laughs> and koala parks. You know, I, well, I'm yet to meet them. Yes. You know, in the electorate. So, yes, there is absolute backing there for it. And, you know, 9,800 jobs. I mean, that's a lot of jobs. That's a and lot of jobs. So the, um, the loss of timber workers' jobs uh, came mm -hmm. down to um, there were 675 jobs, including all the multiplier effects. But the actual okay. timber jobs, which would be lost in the creation of the Great Koala National Park, the actual forest jobs would be in, in, mm -hmm. the, in the order of 180. There'd be 180 jobs lost in the forest and 9,800 jobs created. That was the, the findings? Yeah. One, what I'd like to say about the jobs in the timber industry, two things. One, we need a timber industry, so I'm clear about that. Make no apologies. We need it. We need one that's sustainable, and we need hardwood plantations and more of them. When you talk about only just 100 and odd jobs going, well, we've got to make sure they don't go. Somehow they've got to be other jobs and we've got to make sure those people are transitioned. Yes, we transition, but we've got to do it well. And, um, and we haven't always done that as well as we should. No. Mm. Well, in this case, there is the Sandy Creek Koala Park, which is more local for us. It would actually have, and I spoke to uh, uh, Professor Ryan about this and asked, mm -hmm. it would be, would the findings about the Great Koala National Park be easily transferred across to other uh, koala national parks, such as the Sandy Creek Koala Park? And she emphatically said yes. Mm. There was no doubt about it that we could expect a similar uh, amount of economic return to us from creating that park. So essentially we could, you know, create that just transition within the jobs yep. that were created by the koala park. We can have a koala-led recovery. So what we're looking for, I guess, or what I was <laughs> hoping to get from you is, is, yeah. is backing from you as the local member for the koala-led recovery. Yes, yes. And I've already stated that publicly. You know, I'm on the record. Janelle, I'm, I know that we've got limited time, so I'm going to say thank you so much for your time today and uh, mm -hmm. we appreciate your voice and we'll be looking forward to, uh, to, to getting in touch with you when we, we need to get uh, comment on, on local environmental affairs in future. Sure. Thank you, Sean. That was Janelle Safin, uh, the member for the state seat of Lismore, endorsing the call for a koala-led recovery. <laughs> Thank you.
Federal Parliament has been sitting this week and the Greens have been taking the fight for a just and sustainable world up to the major parties. Larissa Waters spoke strongly to both major parties calling on them to end the system of legal bribery that they call the donations and to institute a fair and just and democratic process for funding elections in Australia. Adam Bant spoke passionately against the Scummo regime's proposal to poison the Clean Energy Finance Corporation by forcing it to fund dirty fossil gas. And Sarah Hansen-Young condemned the cover-up of our environment laws at, with the EPBC Act review being buried by the Scummo regime. She says that our environment is in dire straits and our environment laws are failing, that the Morrison government urgently needs to take on the expert advice from the Samuel Report, the 10-year review into our environmental protection laws, and instead they are disgracefully covering up and distracting from it. If we don't take swift action, she warns, we will lose our natural places, special spots and native animals for good. We need stronger protection, stronger standards and an independent watchdog for our environment now. This government wanted to cover up and distract from the recommendations in this report. Let's go to them because they are absolutely fundamental. What Professor Samuel says in this review is that our environment laws are in dire straits, that our environment is suffering, that if we don't act now, we will lose our native animals, species for good, gone. The biggest threat, of course, to our wildlife and to our environment is climate change and habitat destruction. This report calls on the parliament and the government to take swift action to put in place stronger laws and protections for our environment. We, know, we need to take heed of this advice. We need stronger protections, stronger standards. We shouldn't be allowing new developments and new mines and new destructions to occur without considering the very real long-term impact that these projects are having on our environment. Australians love our natural places. They love our special spots. They love our native animals, and they want us to protect them. One of the things I've noticed more than ever out of COVID is that people are reconnecting with their natural surrounds. They wanna be outside enjoying the Australian bush our beautiful beaches, our coastline. They don't want to see Australia's environment trashed anymore. They want to see our animals protected. And they want a government that will do what it needs to do to stop extinction in its tracks. That was Senator Sarah Hanson-Young calling upon the federal government to act on the Samuel Review of the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act and strengthen our environment laws to actually protect our environment. Wild concept. Adam Bant warns that Australia's Clean Energy Finance Corporation shouldn't be investing in... Adam Bant points out that... Adam Bant is pointing out that Australia's Clean Energy Finance Corporation shouldn't invest public money in dying fossil fuels. Of course, that's exactly what the Liberals and their big fossil fuel industry donors are trying to do. 
and he's calling upon us all to join the fight to stop them. They're saying, let's take public funds and give it to the gas corporations that pay no tax at the moment and that make massive super profits. This is a subsidy for big corporations that pay no tax and pollute and kill our planet. Why are they getting this money? It's because they make donations. So they make donations to the Liberal Party, Labor Party, National Parties, millions of dollars of donations, and they get their way. And what's even more astonishing, what's even more astonishing is that this Clean Energy Finance Corporation is making a profit at the moment. Because it's investing in clean energy technologies and that's the future. And it's making a return to government. And this government wants to turn a profit-making clean energy finance corporation into a venture that invests in losing money on gas. Because it knows that public subsidies for gas are the only way that gas is going to be profitable. So it's turning a profit-making corporation into something that's going to start losing money on its gas investments because it wants to bankroll them and it wants to bankroll gas investments, knowing that no one in their right mind is looking at investing in new fossil fuel investments, so they're coming to the government with their hand out, and this government of largesse and donations and subsidies for big corporations is turning around and giving it to them, not asking these big corporations to pay more tax, it's instead just giving them massive public subsidies. And from this government that says, oh, technology, not taxes, we've got to let the market decide, they're about to open up the $10 billion that exists in the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and make it available to big gas corporations. Now, we know that gas is as dirty as coal. We know that methane, which leaks when you frack, send, send down fracking under good farmland or land across Australia, that's released into the atmosphere, it's up to 86%, 86 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. We know that if we unleash the gas that is there in the Beetaloo Basin or in other places around Australia, we can say goodbye to making our contribution to giving our kids a safe climate to live in. We know that the technology is there now with renewables and storage to drive a clean energy revolution. But what does this bill do? This bill comes in and says, let's make public money available for gas corporations. And I notice, you know, the members have gone on the other side have gone very quiet about this because for all their free market rhetoric, they can't wait to shovel billions of dollars out the door to give to their mates in the gas corporations who are the same corporations that turn around and donate to them. The biggest gas corporations in this country over the last few years brought in about $50 billion in revenue and paid zero tax. Zero tax. They did make some donations. They made some donations to the government. They made some donations to the Labor Party. They paid zero tax. You'd think the argument should be with big gas corporations that are contributing to wrecking our planet, you'd think the starting point should be pay some tax on the massive super profits that you're making and contribute a bit to the cost of dealing with the climate crisis. But no, this supposed free market government that says it loves technology and won't want to interfere in the unleashing of technology is about to take 
the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and its $10 billion that is there to drive the uptake of clean technologies in Australia and make it available to dirty, polluting gas, make it available to toxic methane. All of the free market technology, not taxes rhetoric, dissolves into dust when it comes to subsidising their big corporate mates. Big corporations have too much power over politicians. They exercise that power through the political donations and in return they get things like this bill, a massive multi-billion dollar slush fund for big gas. And you know, people wonder why the cost of going to the doctor keeps going up or why when you send your kids to school at a public school you get hit with all these voluntary school fees and what's meant to be free education turns out to be far from it. Why is everyone else having to pay more? It's because these big corporations get away with paying no tax. And instead of rectifying it, the government is about to give them even more money. The government is about to give them even more public money. This Clean Energy Finance Corporation was set up by the Greens and Labor in the power-sharing parliament of 2010. This government has tried to destroy it. This government tried to wipe out all of that legacy. The only time pollution in this country came down is when the Greens, Labor and Independents worked together and put a price on pollution and put in place the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, put in place the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, put in place things like the Carbon Farming Initiative. And it has worked. And the government tried to get rid of this CEFC. Why on earth would you want to tinker with that and take money away from renewables and make it available to the gas and coal and dirty fuel corporations? Well, there can only be one answer, or two answers. One is you don't actually really seriously believe in climate change. And we heard from the Deputy Prime Minister that he doesn't care what happens in 30 years' time. He doesn't care if we go over that climate cliff and our kids are left to pick up the mess. So we understand why the government is moving this bill, because they don't care what's going to happen in 30 years' time. And the only other reason you do it is that your big corporate donors have asked you to. And those big corporate donors that pay zero dollars in tax aren't being asked by this government to pay their fair share. Instead, they're being given more handouts. Well, it's time to say enough for the handouts for the big corporations. The big corporations and the billionaires need to pay their fair share of tax. They need to be, pay a bit more so that everyone else can pay a bit less. And that's going to start by amending this bill. That was Greens leader Adam Bant in federal parliament this week exposing the scummer regime's plans to gut the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and hand over uh, the funds that are devoted for renewable energy to the fossil fools. Later in the week, we had the lunatic fringe of the coalition coming out and saying we should spend the Clean Energy Finance Corporation's capital on nukes. So there really is no end to the craziness coming out of the coalition. As Bant pointed out, the reason why the coalition intends to uh, gut the renewable industry is uh, for its corporate mates. Uh, it's corruption. There's no other word for it. Oh, yes, there is. It's called donations. Larissa Waters uh, had a lot more to say on the donations culture. 
She expresses her frustration of spending private senators' time debating a Labor bill that barely scratched the surface of what's needed to clean up political donations, and then Labor doesn't even have the guts to bring it to a vote. Once again, it's all talk, no action from the major parties. We need to ban donations from dirty industries, cap all donations at $1,000 and ensure real-time disclosure donations, Senator Waters says. So this is a bare minimum reform. Lowering the disclosure threshold is the least that we could do to clean up the influence of big money on politics. It doesn't remove the influence of that money. It would at least have some transparency over the process. But after today, we still won't have that because you're not bringing this bill on for a vote. So um, one wonders, frankly, at the, at, at the point of even debating this, if you're not going to move it to a vote. Now, I'm sure everybody knows that big money continues to corrupt our democracy and to prioritise private interests over the public interest and over the interests of um, the broader constituency and people. And in just the last year, we saw these figures disclosed last Monday by the Electoral Commission, in 2019, nearly $170 million was donated to political parties. And the majority of that money came from just five big donors. Now, the alarming thing is the trend here. Between 2016 and 2019 elections, the amount of money that was donated tripled. So the problem of private money buying political parties and funding their re-election campaigns is getting worse. It's gotten three times worse between the last two elections. And these are just the donations that we do know about. And I'll talk a bit about dark money in a moment. But this is a particularly concerning trajectory, particularly since we're staring down the barrel of the next election. The usual suspects like the gambling industry, fossil fuels, pharmaceuticals and the banking sector have continued to give very generously and they've been rewarded with grants, with contracts, with advantageous policy outcomes or advantageous policy in action in the case of the climate crisis. Just a few examples. The guy whose box factory opening kept the Prime Minister from an international climate summit, Mr Anthony Pratt, donated $1.55 million to the coalition through Pratt Holdings. And Pratt's company, Vizzy, ended up with a $10 million bushfire recovery grant, and now with a recycling export ban that strengthens their market dominance. Collectively, the biggest five fossil fuel giants, Woodside, Santos, Rio Tinto, BHP and Peabody, gave around $10 million to the major parties and to lobby groups in uh, 1920. Uh, is it any wonder that we see government paralysis on the climate crisis and this continued fiction of a gas-led recovery? Chevron paid no tax on their Australian earnings, but they somehow managed to find $92,000 to donate to the major parties. Crown, who you'll hear a lot more about this week, um, gave almost $146,000 to the major parties in 1920, and they've given $2 million since the year 2000. Now, given the evidence that we've heard from the Bergen report just last week about uh, criminal uh, involvement and money laundering allegations, uh, it really is incumbent upon both big parties to give that money back. Um, and what's better, to give it to a gambling support service and charity. And we'll be uh, talking about that later today. But more examples of big money buying big outcomes. The big four accounting firms donated 400000 to the big parties. And over that same period, they got themselves almost $600 million in government contracts. Pretty good return on investment there. And after a brief hiatus during the Banking Royal Commission, 
the big banks have resumed donating again. The banks, the financial lobby groups and the major insurance and credit firms delivered over $900,000 to the government in 1920, which, you know, wouldn't possibly have anything to do with the efforts to, res to relax responsible lending laws, now would it? That was Senator Larissa Waters wrapping up this segment on the Voices for the Environment from our federal parliament this week. David Morris is the CEO of the Environmental Defenders Office, or EDO. David's responsible for the delivery of EDO's public interest environmental legal services and he joined the EDO New South Wales as CEO in October 2017 after four years practising public interest environmental law in the Northern Territory as Principal Lawyer and Executive Officer of EDO NT. In August 2019, David became CEO of the new National EDO of Australia. David Morris, thank you for joining Environmental As Anything today. Real pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me on. The Environmental Defenders Office is doing such an extraordinary job uh, defending our environment in, through the courts and through legal action. It's a great privilege to have you here today. I know there's a huge amount on, so I'm going to try and quickly race through uh, some of it. The big story on my mind is the, uh, the EPBC Act Review's final report and uh, the, uh, this trajectory unsustainable. Uh, the EDO's put out uh, 10 key uh, findings on that, and I was just wondering if you might be able to run us through those. The review is not taking place in isolation within a considered government position following it and then reform. Um, the, there is reform currently before the parliament um, and was between the interim review being released and the final report. So there's definitely some cart and horse issues going on in the background. In terms of the review itself and the final report, you said trajectory unsustainable. That's the key finding. We've had this legislation in place for 20 years and it's fundamentally failed to deliver environmental protection for Australia's environment and for Australians. You know, we are all it's totally intertwined with our environment. We need it to be managed effectively. We need to be managing it sustainably. Um, and this key piece of Commonwealth legislation doesn't do that. That's the key finding. Um, what do they say will happen with that finding? Well, a complete rewrite. Go back to the drawing board. Um, and at the moment, the government position is to um, actually weaken things, which would seem a strange decision to make off the back of this review. It certainly sits uncomfortably with the findings of it. The key recommendation... I think many of your listeners would have heard of, which is the concept of having enforceable national environmental standards. Standards which apply whether a decision is being made by the Commonwealth Minister or whether it's being made by a minister in a state or territory um, so that you have that consistent uh, objectives being applied um, wherever a particular consideration is being made. And, and that's critical because uh, there are historical examples where you've got really, really poor decision-making being made across different states and territories. And there, there are, in some instances, good reasons for that, uh, mm -hmm. lack of resourcing in various states and territories. So this idea of if you're trying to protect things that are nationally important, having consistent protection of those, it's crucial. So that's the key finding. But I should go through some of the others too. Because those national standards don't just sit in isolation. They only work if they're being effectively enforced. Yep. Um, and they go far broader than the current uh, sort of clauses in the, in the EPBC Act itself. So you've got things like 
um, standards for getting better data so that we can actually understand what is happening in the environment. Um, better standards for Indigenous engagement. The, the report is fairly scathing. Uh, it, it notes um, tokenism, really, in terms of Indigenous engagement on these types of matters, and it also refers to the um, really disastrous piece of legislation which sits at the Commonwealth level in terms of protecting cultural heritage um, and urges a reform of that too. Uh, that's something that the EDO wholeheartedly reports, uh, yep. supports rather. I think the thing that is really, really important for all of your listeners to understand is that these standards are fundamentally different from what is currently in the legislation. Uh, our Director of Policy and Law Reform, Rachel Wormsley, who's a um, an outstanding lawyer and, and, and one of the sort of preeminent experts in this field made the sort of trite point that you can't change, you can't implement new standards just by writing standards at the top of a document that doesn't have them. And that's, that really is what the government has done here. The government is really trying to devolve powers to the states and territories, and they're trying to do that with the current framework in place. They're not looking to strengthen things. Um, and strengthening things along with better assurance, better compliance, better monitoring, better Indigenous engagement is what we need to do if we want to halt the degradation of Australia's environment. Mm. Uh, what the government's policy is currently and what they've got before uh, the Senate crossbenchers and are trying to uh, do a deal with them at the moment um, is a weakening of our current framework. It's shockingly within uh, the standard playbook for the, uh, the 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 SCOMO regime. Really, they they you know with their attacks on the CFC going on simultaneously, it it does seem to be all all part of a, a pattern. Um, I, I like the thought with within those uh, those recommendations that the, one of the things that have always preoccupied me is the idea of third party legal challenges and how important it is that the community has the ability to uh, to challenge these things when they go wrong. And obviously, from the EDO's perspective, that must be a really vitally important uh, function as well. Yeah, look, I, I think it's, it's really uh, useful and important for the community to have had the Samuel Review independently assess claims that, uh, you know, organisations like the EDO are inappropriately using legislation to bring, you know, we've been described as having brought vexatious litigation. We would never do that, sure. Mm. Um, but more importantly, it exposes the furphy that is the lawfare argument. You know, th this really is communities that have a real interest um, in these decisions. And these are national environmental protections, remember, so they're important to all of us. Uh, it, it is quite proper that those groups be able to go and ask questions uh, of courts about the way in which these decisions are being managed. It's even more important uh, when you think those approvals are not going to be resting with uh, the Commonwealth anymore, uh, but are proposed to be resting with ministers in states and territories. So, um, look, that, that's a, it's a strong finding. Uh, it actually recommends extending uh, the, the current provision. So it doesn't um, suggest whole-scale merits review of all decisions, but it does say that, that merits review. So um, that is a... Merits review, for, for your listeners who are unfamiliar with the concepts of a merits review versus a judicial review, a merits review is far broader. Um, it looks to, you know, is this a good outcome or not? Mm. Um, a judicial review is very much more looking at the technicalities of the way in which a decision was made. Was it made, um, you know, lawfully or otherwise? And you can get into some really um, technical aspects. Now, I, I think that it would be wrong to say that technical aspects of environmental laws are unimportant. They're critically important. 
you know, the, the legislation sets out how a decision should be made. Decision makers who are um, afforded the, you know, that critical responsibility should be discharging their duties in accordance with law. But I think it's important that we also have merits reviews because um, they do go to, is this a good or bad decision? Is this an unacceptable or acceptable decision for our environment, for future generations, for nature? Yeah. So next, I guess, uh, what, what is it the EDO is hoping is going to happen with the legislations before the parliament? Should it be uh, simply thrown out and do they need to start again? Is that, is that the, the call? Well, that's the recommendation of the independent review. 30,000 mm. submissions, um, you know, expensive review that, that taxpayers have funded. Um, it, it's gone to great lengths, I think, to engage across the board with a variety of stakeholders. Uh, it took the best part of a year or maybe even just slightly over a year uh, I don't understand why the government wouldn't really accept its findings. It, and you don't even need to accept the findings of just that. It's the findings of everything that looks at the state of our environment. Mm. The, all of the state of the environment reports show a decline. We see a decline of the Great Barrier Reef and other world heritage values. We've had um, catastrophic bushfires in the 2019-20 summer. Uh, it's, it's, you know, abundantly clear to anyone with their eyes open that we have a environment that is in real difficulty. Yeah. And we've now had this independent report, which makes really sensible recommendations for what we should do legally to address that. Mm. Um, and the government should respect the year-long review. And, and at the moment, you know, you've got crossbenchers who have said they're not going to accept uh, the government's proposal until national standards are put in place. Um, as you may have read in the, in the public reporting, the government has... Um, tried to describe the current clauses of the EPVC Act as standards. That's not a real thing. Uh, and, and what the crossbench, I hope, uh, will demand is, is standards in line with what uh, the Graham Samuel Review recommends. You've had a few wins lately, which I wanted to just quickly highlight. I mean, there's the dendrobium coal mine extension being refused by the IPC. That was a fantastic uh, outcome. Of course, huge ructions with uh, you know, Porky Barillaro frothing about the, the IPC needing to be uh, to be wound up. Uh, the, the legal win uh, on the Biolong coal project being, you know, re having the appeal refused and then uh, the uh, Ackland mine being sent back uh, to, to the courts for another hearing. These are all steps in the right direction, aren't they? Look, they are. And, and perhaps if I can go to Dendrobium first. Sure. This is a, this is a decision... Uh, by the IPC to refuse the expansion of, of that particular underground coal mine. It seeks to expand its operations under the Illawarra's drinking water catchment. Um, this is a very evidence-based decision. The, um, the, the refusal of that by the IPC, I think, should have come as no surprise because you had the government's own instrumentalities saying that this is not a good idea um, based on the predicted impacts to drinking water. At some point, we have to um, acknowledge that the cost benefit of new coal, um, particularly in circumstances where it's going to be mined uh, and compromised drinking water, is just not a cost benefit analysis that even needs to be done anymore. You know, mm. this, this is a fuel that is on its way out. Mm. Um, and so mining it in that location um, was always going to be problematic. And I, I think that, the you know, the finding of the subsidence effects, um, you know, degradation of watercourses and swamps, um, detrimental impacts to biodiversity and threatened species also 
uh, you know, the, the evidence here was overwhelming and they've made, I think, a very evidence-based decision to refuse that project. We'll see where it goes from here. I, I can well expect that there will be uh, consideration at least of appeals of, of that decision and, and certainly the EDO will be very much keeping that on our radar. Absolutely. Um, now, you, you've raised two others, Sean, and, and I think the next one was, was the Bylong Project. Yeah, Bylong would seem was a very exciting win. Uh, I know it's a while ago now, but it was uh, it, it's still something we haven't uh, you know been able to cover yet. But uh, yeah, it, it seemed like a great great step forward again to be able to knock that uh, disgusting looking project on the head. I, I drove through the Bylong Valley Way uh, just after Christmas um, when when I was trying to get to Victoria unsuccessfully, and um, it, it, it's just a remarkable part of the world. It really oh, it's exquisitely beautiful. Yeah. Um, Putting that to one side, the, the sort of legal significance of this, I think, is, is enormous. It, it says that what the IPC did uh, in respect of refusing that mine was right and that um, consideration by the Independent Planning Commission included looking at climate impacts, included looking at the um, local climate impacts on that mine. It, it looked at uh, what Chief Justice Preston did, it did in Rocky Hill, uh, another greenfield coal mine proposed for uh, basically in the town of Gloucester in the Upper Hunter. Uh, and so we now have a pattern of decisions which are looking at um, the way you grapple with climate impacts in a local planning context. And I think that's really important. Um, this is now, you know, greenfield coal proposal number two that has been refused um, both on its sort of standard planning grounds in terms of you know, what are the preferred uses of the land? What impact is it going to have on, um, on the local area and the amenity of it? But also looking at the climate impacts of these new projects. So that's, that's really significant. And I think it's, um, you know, a warning sign for uh, proponents who might be looking at developing new greenfield coal proposals. Um, mm. You've now got a number of precedents which um, stand for the proposition that their climate impacts are going to be a key feature of consideration. The process in terms of bylong was that it was refused uh, by the Independent Planning Commission. Uh, Kepco, the mining company, appealed that decision to the Land and Environment Court and the EDO actually represented the community group. We sought an application to become joined to that proceeding. Um, the government felt or the Independent Planning Commission felt that uh, it shouldn't play an active role because if they were wrong, it would be sent back to them. Uh, and, 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 you know, that might be fair enough. It, it, it meant that if the EDO hadn't been there and the community group hadn't been courageous enough to take that case, there would have been no active contradictor. And that's really problematic if you think about the way our legal system operates. So, you know, we were fantastically happy for our clients that the outcome was that the Land and Environment Court found in our clients' favour on every ground. And we now wait to see whether the mining company is going to appeal to the next level, which would be the Supreme Court Court of Appeal in New South Wales. So, so that's a that's uh, a situation where the uh, the international uh, climate for, or, the, or the concern for climate and Kepco's recent uh, you know statements of uh, aiming for net zero uh, and and all of that should should play into uh, the, the the advantage of the uh, of the the Bylong Valley. I would have thought. Look, yeah, I mean, it's it. I guess it's sort of somewhat tangential to the kind of strict legal discussions, but I think the geopolitics that's playing out is fascinating at the moment. Uh, you know, the COP later on this year, which will be led by Boris, Boris Johnson's um, UK government, you'll have the new American President Biden there. Um, uh, this is a, a, a space that is shifting incredibly quickly 
and and for companies that are uh, not prepared for the speed of this transition, there's going to be some real problems. One of the exciting programs that we have at the EDO, which perhaps we can speak about at another time, um, is the commercial and corporate program, which we've set up, which is really designed to um, provide scrutiny about what companies are doing um, mm. as we get into really the critical stages of this transition. The science is very clear about what needs to happen over the next 10 and 20 years. Um, that is a challenge of enormous magnitude. And there will be companies uh, that go the way of Kodak that didn't see the digital um, photography transition coming and and, uh, and there'll be others that prepare themselves and, and take steps accordingly, but they need to take uh, quick steps and uh, you've pointed out that some companies, many companies now are, are making um, really positive statements about where their business is going by 2050 and net zero emissions. So I think the, the final victory that you were keen to touch on was the Ackland yeah. uh, case. This is this is the EDO's epic, um, really. It's, it's, uh, it's a case that has been, um, I, I guess, discussed and, and, and controversial since... 2016, when it was first before the Queensland Land Court, uh, an epic 100-day hearing. And I probably won't go to the complexity of the back and forths between no, no. the original Land Court hearing. I think the, the important thing for, the, um, for your listeners to understand is that we were successful in the, um, in the High Court and the outcome of that was that uh, the matter will be sent back for a fresh rehearing uh, on its merits, so looking at whether or not the expansion of the Ackland um, coal mine is a good or bad outcome. Mm. Uh, and that's scheduled, I think, later this year in sometime like November. It's going to be another, um, I think, four to five week hearing that will that will look at the various aspects of that mine. And um, it, it's obviously incredibly important for our clients. They've, uh, they're, they're critically concerned about uh, their livelihoods about the, uh, you know, the, the quality of the agricultural land upon which that mine is proposed to open cut mine. Uh, and, uh, you know, these are, these are farmers who have spent large parts of their life now fighting this expansion. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's some tragedy associated with those stories and, and we feel very privileged as an organisation that our win in the High Court for them gives them some hope. Uh, yeah. and, and, and that's, you know, one of the, really lovely things for us as, as public interest environmental lawyers is that connection we get to have with our clients uh, who are often going through very, very stressful, very, very personal battles against uh, enormous odds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, on that and, you know, just perhaps about the future, just a couple of things perhaps to wrap it up as quickly as we, we can, I guess. The, the Santos uh, appeal um, uh, you know, obviously the community are filing a, a, an appeal against the, uh, the Narrabri gas project there and uh, also the uh, Supreme Court action over Glencore's MacArthur River mine. Could you give us a, a real quick overview of uh, what, what's going on there and what we can do uh, to, you know, to help, if anything? Yeah, look, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the EDO... People probably, or many of your listeners will be familiar that the EDOs collectively, we merged last year and it's, it's become a, a really foundational part of our new direction because we now have this strength and, and scale across the country. Um, it enables us to provide our expertise um, and, and, you know, our support, legal expertise and support to communities wherever they are. Um, and that includes the Gulf of Carpentaria, of course, we, we just mentioned, and also sort of in, you know, um, 
a, a remote part of New South Wales where Santos is proposing the Narrabri gas field. Um, we are now, we were the subject of, of big funding cuts in 2013 uh, yep. by the government. And so since that time, we've been reliant on increasing community and public support. And, and we're incredibly grateful that that's been forthcoming. The community has really got behind uh, the Environmental Defender's Office and increasingly does so as, as a new national entity. Uh, it's, it's been really quite wonderful to watch that support come on board and it's allowing us to do a lot of really positive things, um, two of which you've just mentioned. The, the Santos Narrabri um, challenge, that's a, a challenge which will be um, heard by the Land and Environment Court. It is, uh, we're acting on behalf of the Mullalay Gas and Pipeline Accord um, they made submissions against the development of the Narrabri gas project and uh, we're seeking a judicial review of the Independent Planning Commission's decision to approve that project. Uh, the, really, the case relates broadly to two aspects of the IPC's decision. The first is the failure of the IPC to consider um, the impact of the pipeline, the transmission pipeline that uh, is, is necessary for the project. It can't go ahead without it. And then the second, um, the second grounds relate to the way the IPC grappled with greenhouse gas emissions of the project. Now we say there are some problematic aspects to the way that decision-making occurred, such that it was unlawful. It's always a battle, Sean, to try and work out how to distill these things in a way that's really easily understandable rather than going into some kind of boring legal explanation of things. But, but I think really we're, we're saying that... Um, a couple of things. The first is there's no evidence before the IPC that the Narrabri gas project would displace coal as a source of electricity generation. Yeah. Um, and, and that was one of the things that the IPC said made it a, a, a good project and a viable project because of the emissions benefits it would, yeah. it would provide. Yeah, it's a fundamental flaw, isn't it, in the, in the, whole, in the whole thing? Well, we say it's an unlawful flaw in the, in the way they approached it, yes. And then the, and the second thing we said is that instead of looking at the project and its emissions... Um, they did an artificial analysis of whether it had an emissions advantage over coal. You know, they could have gone and done an analysis about whether solar would have an emissions advantage over it, which it clearly would. Uh, they didn't do that. They compared it directly with coal. And so, um, you know, the grounds of that appeal are, are central to, you know, the development of climate litigation. And there's lots and lots of examples of how courts are starting to grapple with the emissions problem and that's only going to increase uh, as we proceed headlong into a, you know, in, into a, a climate crisis, which science tells us is is a very, very bad place that we find ourselves in. We need to move very, very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, MacArthur River. MacArthur River. Yeah, give us the give us the dirt on MacArthur River, which is a lot further from here, but uh, it would would be of interest. Look, it, it, it's a story. I spent the best part of five years as the principal lawyer at the EDO in the Northern Territory and um, had the real privilege of working with uh, the community at Borrelula who were uh, facing problems with this enormous lead and zinc mine. And it's a story that, that the head of the Environment Centre described as a national scandal. It is. Unfortunately, it just doesn't get the profile that a national scandal should. Mm. Um, this is a mine that has been controversial since uh, its approval back in the early 2000s where the mining company said, we want to move and divert a major tropical river to access the ore body, which, which lies beneath the riverbed itself. Um, there were numerous predictions of, of environmental catastrophe at that time and they're coming to pass. The... Um, 
the key to this case actually looks at what our client, Jack Green, described as the river's insurance policy. It, it, it looks at the government's decision to reduce the river's insurance policy by $120 million, uh, while at the same time approving an expansion of the mine, um, an expansion of the problematic waste rock that will be produced from mining there. Uh, and the approval runs, Sean, out to 30, uh, 3019. I've never seen that in a, a, a document before, but I've described this mine as having created a thousand year problem in 10 years. Um, the government has, has approved uh, the project, despite there being significant vagaries about what the, around what the project looks like over the next thousand years. Um, and, and at the same time, reduce the security bond. And we say that the minister um, didn't lawfully discharge her duty when uh, calculating the security bond for the site. Just, it's hubris. It's unbelievable that anybody would consider a thousand year approval for anything. I mean, really. It's like, what is it, a Reich of a thousand years? You know, like it's, it's crazy talk. <laughs> It, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a staggering problem that's been created at that site, Sean. Um, it is a source of great stress, in my experience, to, to people who live in, in and around that uh, area and, and downstream of the mine as well. Um, and it's, it's a real challenge. There are no easy answers on MacArthur River, but I can, uh, uh, the answer we say um, couldn't have lawfully been to reduce the security bond for Glencore by $120 million. And the question we're asking of the court in that case, um, on behalf of the Environment Centre Northern Territory and our two um, clients who are traditional custodians of the area, Jack Green and Josephine Davey, uh, is, is whether or not the minister could lawfully have done what she did uh, in terms of reducing the security from $520 million odd down to $400 million odd. Mm. That's a really important case, deserving Absolutely. of national attention. Absolutely. Look, uh, David, thank you so much for, for all of that. That's a, a, a great briefing on, on the state of play for the EDO. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, I'm sure that people are going to find that informative and uh, inspiring. Thank you for all of your time today and all of the great work you're doing. And uh, I hope that we can get together uh, soon and, uh, and talk ab about some more of the stories that are, that are ongoing and that are upcoming. Thank you for having me on, Sean. It's been uh, been joy to have a chat. That was CEO of the Environmental Defenders Office, David Morris, briefing us on the Environmental Defenders Report. And here you are, tuned into Environmental as Anything. Thanks for being with us today. Miriam Torzillo, Lismore Local and a member of the group Wage Peace is here with me in the studio for Environmental as Anything. Thank you very much for joining us, Miriam. Thank you, Sean. Can you tell me more about Wage Peace? I haven't heard much about them. Okay, so Wage Peace is an organisation formed a, a few years back from um, a number of individuals and uh, concerned citizens uh, to uh, try and be a forum... Um, a way to link together different groups working in that um, in that anti-militarism, anti-arms race space, uh, and to do uh, and in particular to connect groups to uh, inform and support uh, groups and to uh, amplify actions that were being taken um, that, that that were taking place in Australia and and around the world, so we could do what we could. 
because the people in Wage Peace are like me. They're working in, in regional areas and around Australia. Uh, but thanks to the magic of uh, the uh, internet, we can, we can work um, online and we can work to support and amplify whatever else is going on. Um, yeah. So what is going on? What is going on is um, there has been a lot going on uh, here and uh, around the world. Um, so what Wage Peace has been doing recently in Brisbane is to draw attention to um, the emergence of um, the military industries and corporations in suburbs near, um, near you if you live in Brisbane um, and other, um, other places around Australia leading up to an event called Land Forces and that will take place in Brisbane at the Expo um, Exhibition Centre from the 1st of the 3rd to the 3rd of June. Um, so this is a massive exposition which was cancelled uh, last year because of COVID but this year is going ahead. Um, so what? So just briefly, uh, what happens at Land, land Forces? Uh, this expo will bring together Defence Department delegations together with arms dealers. Uh, these, uh, these delegations and arms dealers are, are, are um, national and international, basically to organise the buying and selling of weapons from private companies to military and police forces. Right. So why should people who listen to this program be concerned about that. Um, there is a, there is a, 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 the, the, um, well, the arms trade. The arms trade and, militar and militarism in general is intertwined with climate change. Absolutely. The trade in weapons causes immense suffering, has a massive carbon bootprint, advances resource extraction, it, we see that broadly, and indigenous dispossession and impacts all civil society movements for justice and peace. So, you know, we, we, we in the environment movement and the peace movement need to keep connecting those dots. Absolutely. Uh, and, and showing how that's all, um, that all comes it's together. It's all part of the same thing. Peace and justice uh, that's right. for, for, for people and for the environment. Mm -hmm. It's vitally important. So I'll just give you a list of, you know, a, a rough guide to what's going to be for sale and on display will be tanks and armoured vehicles ammunition, guns, attack helicopters, weaponised land-based robots, missiles, computer digitised interfaces for sending rockets and ammunition, camera laser systems for cannons and drones to, and this, this next phrase comes direct from the manufacturers of these, to enhance lethality. Mm, yeah. Better for killing and weaponised flying drones and these weapons will kill men, women and children like yourself, but this will euphemistically be called collateral damage. Yes. Yes, indeed. Not the kind of uh, shopping trip you want to take the kids on for Christmas, it sounds like. In fact, not the kind of shopping trip you want anybody going on uh, around you or, or on your planet, for that matter. Hopefully not. So, um, but there's some good news. Uh, a, a, an expo uh, like this last year in Auckland in New Zealand 
was disrupted to the to the extent that it was closed down by citizens taking nonviolent direct action mm. um, in that space. So um, what can you do? Because it seems, it, it, it can seem if you start to look around at the literature and, you know, the information about this uh, to be hopeless and depressing, immediately you could uh, go to the Wage Peace website and you could immediately sign a petition that calls on the Defence Export Controls, that is Australia's military export regulator, to join in promoting human rights, not weapon sales. So it, it is a fact that this export controls um, component of the, the regulator is not not actually, in fact, doing much controlling. So uh, we want to ask that Australia upholds its international obligations, not through the responsible export of weapons, which they would, might claim, but through honouring the human rights covenants we have signed. Because it, it, it might surprise people to know and, 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 and you might be appalled to know that weapons that produced in Australia have been sold to the UAE have, and have been used in Yemen to kill people. Yeah. that weapons that are produced in Australia have been used to kill and commit human rights abuses in West Papua, right, uh, one of our closest neighbours. Yes. No, the Scummo regime has made a big uh, thing about pushing the weapons industry mm -hmm. here in Australia as, yes. a, as an opportunity for this country mm. and obviously uh, it's, a, it's mm. a disaster for this country. Yeah. So, Miriam, we've got very little time left. In the last minute or so, yep. what is it that people can do today and, and how can they get involved with the, uh, with the upcoming event in June? So um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you um, an email that you can um, connect with us because what we're asking for is for people like you to come and support us in doing a number of things, in raising public awareness about the event um, and helping us to expose the companies in Brisbane, close to where we are here, engaged in weapons, designing, engineering and or manufacturing and to seek the cessation of those lucrative business contracts uh, and to help us at Land Forces to aim to um, put a spotlight on what's going on and call attention to that um, and to do what we can it, with nonviolent direct action to disrupt this expo. So um, if, if you um, would go onto the Wage Peace site... That's at uh, wagepeaceau.org. So that's W-A-G-E-P-E-A-C-E-A-U.org. And you can click onto the link, the Land Forces tab. Um, I've got also, if you are interested in participating, supporting any of our actions, um, you can contact uh, LFE info. LFE uppercase, info lowercase, at gmail.com. That's there on that That's uh, there. web page? That's there on the web page. So, you know, we, we would love to have some people from Northern Rivers um, to come and support uh, this, these, these actions um, in an endeavour to do what we can um, 
to end this arms trade. It's a disgrace. And it really does need to yeah, be opposed. This export industry of Australia. That's fantastic, Miriam. Look, we'll try to uh, put up a link to uh, Wage Peace up mm-hmm. on the Environmental As Anything Facebook page. Absolutely. Which is still functioning, strangely enough. Incredible. But um, <laughs> uh, in the meantime, uh, those who know you, and there will be plenty out there who do, yes. you, you, know, you know Wilting Violet, uh, <laughs> you'll, they'll be able to look you up uh, through your, your own uh, contacts. Look that me up. For you already. Yes. And get more information. Yes. And, uh, or check out. Uh, just just go and check out that webpage right now, and uh, yeah. and it's in June sixth. Did you say June the first to the third? First to the third. So the first to the third of June. Put it in your diaries. Get ready to get up to Brisbane. I remember ADEX back in the, mm-hmm. oh, the very early nineties. It was a great success in terms of protest action against uh, this kind of uh, you know arms trade. These kinds of death dealers. So get yourselves yes. together, people, and help out. Thank you so yes. much, Miriam, for Thank coming you. to share that with everybody. Thank you very much, Sean. No worries. You are with Environmental as Anything. Quack, quack. If you like ducks, be sure to stay tuned as hunters in New South Wales have their eye on the birds and one hand on the trigger. The Tweed Shire Council continues to push back against gold mining explorations in the region. Lest we forget, scientists tally up the flowers, trees and plants lost thanks to Australia's Black Summer's bushfires last year. But the bushfires have also given us what could be a once in a lifetime chance to see some very special flowers on the Blue Mountains. And a win for traditional owners and environmentalists this week with plans for a new dam in the Byron Hinterland scrapped for now. I'm Chiara Brechbühler. I'm Rory, I'm Osmond, I'm Lovely. My name is Alian Ecker. I'm Mia Armitage and it's my pleasure to have the company of some young people from Yak Radio in Byron this week with me for Eco News brought to you by Community Newsroom. Starting on the Northern Rivers where those who have been damming the idea of a new dam in the Byron Lismore hinterland will be happy to hear the Rouse County Council's latest attempt to approve it has failed. The council is in charge of most water supplies in the region and has met earlier this week to consider a rescission motion that would have allowed the Danoon Dam to go ahead. Ballinet councillor Sharon Cadwallader had tabled the rescission with support from Richmond Valley Mayor Robert Mustow and councillor Sandra Humphreys. Councillor Cadwallader says there still isn't enough evidence to remove the dam from the water strategy. But the other five councillors have voted against the motion, cementing an earlier vote from the council to cancel plans for the dam. Meanwhile, traditional owners have been calling on the Rouse County Council to stick with its decision. The Wijibul Wayabal people say they want the land rezoned to remove future threats of flooding there. You can read a statement signed by more than 80 Wijibul Wayabal elders and traditional owners on Echonet Daily. They say part of the land is where white authorities moved local First Nations people after stealing their other land just over a hundred years ago. The Wijibul Wayabal people say the land is therefore an important part of their survival journey and cannot be compensated for. Meanwhile, in the Tweed Shire, an application for a gold mining exploration licence has continued to cause debate among Tweed Shire councillors and residents. Gold Belt's application lodged in October last year covers an 118 square kilometre corridor from Balambal Heights in the north 
to Dunbible in the south and seeks permission for the company to search underground for metallic minerals including gold, silver and copper. Tweedshire councillors at a meeting earlier this month noted a response from the Minister of Regional New South Wales to a letter they say objected in the strongest terms to the application. The matter has raised question over the transparency and regulations of minerals while access agreements are required for mining exploration on private land, a landholder cannot always refuse consent. Much like mining for coal and gas, if negotiations between landholders and mining companies fail, the company can take the landholder to court. Tweed Mayor Chris Cherry says mining consent on council land needs clarification. Mayor Cherry says she heard very strongly that people on the northern rivers don't want the mining to happen and has won majority support of her fellow councillors to write back to the minister reiterating deep concerns about the international significance of the local environment and scenic landscape. Turning to the black summer bushfires just over a year ago, a research study led by CSIRO estimates 100 Australian plant species have been burnt entirely, and more than another 800 have had more than half their area burnt. The study is published in the journal Nature Communications and used satellite data to map the fires. Many of the species studied are highly adapted to recover from fire, either by reshooting or growing from seeds awaiting in nearby soils. But there are fears that the loss of mature plants has left some species and entire ecosystems vulnerable. The fires have left rainforest species particularly exposed. CSIRO researcher and lead author of the study, Dr. Bob Godfrey, says one group of rainforest plants particularly vulnerable are a variety of orchids as they don't have much of a seed bank. The CSIRO study says overseas evidence suggests catastrophic fire events that can trigger tipping points where forests are replaced with other vegetation. Dr. Godfrey says Australia's black summer has impacted more plant species in a single fire season than anything that has happened since European settlement, possibly longer. But now we will hear a positive impact of the bushfires. Just one year on, in the fire-ravaged Blue Mountains, a sea of colours is sweeping across wide areas of the landscape as long-dormant pink flannel flowers spring to life. They're known as bushfire ephemerals because the seeds only germinate after fire and are blooming from Katoomba to Lithgow and north to Nunes. The pink flannel flower isn't endangered so much as rarely seen except by people who hang around for the scorched earth. Senior Research Fellow at the University of New South Wales Centre for Ecosystem Science, Dr Mark Uwe, says you might only see them once or twice in your lifetime. 
They only last for a few months before they disappear, waiting for the next bushfire. Similar species are found in Western Australia and also other Mediterranean-type climates, such as parts of California and South Africa. It seems the flowers respond to bushfire smoke to germinate, rather than heat. Photographs of the pink flannels in full bloom are turning up on citizen science sites like those run by the bushfire recovery projects at the University of New South Wales Centre. Walkers aged in their 80s are out collecting seeds for research. Even though the New South Wales government has handed out huge amounts for bushfire recovery recently, the Blue Mountains received none of it. But our great land is greater than politics. If you like ducks, particularly wild ducks, listen up. New South Wales' fastest-growing pro-shooting organisation has sent Community Newsroom a media release saying it's time to put wild duck back on the menu. The Shooters' Union New South Wales is calling for a return to an open duck season in the state. The group says the current La Nina wet season that started in late 2020 has led to a large increase in numbers of wood duck, Pacific black duck, chestnut teal, hardhead, mountain duck and pink ear duck throughout New South Wales. Shooters Union New South Wales coordinator Craig Golding says plagues of wood ducks are severely impacting turf farms and farm dams as well as private and public swimming pools. Mr Golding says open duck season is both sustainable and essential in the management of duck numbers across the state. He's pointed to Victoria, South Australia, the Northern Territory and Tasmania as examples of other states carrying out what he says are sustainable open duck hunting seasons. The Shooters Union says a September 2019 New South Wales DPI report shows so-called conservation hunters contribute well to the state's economy as much as $1.8 billion in the financial year ending 2018. Previously, Community Newsroom has heard from TV presenter, author and advocate of sustainable farming, Matthew Evans, who says commercial farmers in Australia kill tens of thousands of wild ducks each year to protect their crops. Some of the wild ducks killed are migratory birds that would typically travel the world, with Australia a mere pit stop on their natural journeys. Mr Evans says the little-known wild duck killing season raises yet another serious question over sustainable, fam f over sustainable farm practices in Australia. Anyone with a similar view may wish to let the New South Wales DPI know whether or not they want a duck killing season back on their calendar. Today's Eco News Stories are sourced from The Echo, SMH, The Guardian and Community Newsroom with production assistance from Annie Reid and Yak Radio. Mia Armitage, Community Newsroom for Eco News. I think it's uh, it's good for us in a rural uh, setting uh, here, where there, there, there may be some uh, listeners out there who actually are working on farms and who are thinking about their uh, their carbon footprints and ways to fix it and realising that they're getting no support, in fact, the absolute opposite of support from the Nats. It's uh, it's always good to give that a bit of uh, of airtime, I think. Supplement your ruminants with seaweed. It makes them have heaps less methane.
Well, that's a good idea. There you go. Yeah, There's all sorts of things. We've reported on it before, but they have. They my have. goat, when I had used to have goats, they loved seaweed. They would just scruffle it up out of the tin and mm. like scoff it down. So you just want to take your take your your your, your, your cows down to the beach more often. <laughs> that's going to fix them up. <laughs> yeah. Now, anyway, as you can hear, Naomi Shine is has uh, come in to shine a bit of light on uh, the local environment scene. Thanks for being here, Naomi. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sean. It's it's, uh, it's great. It's been a good afternoon of. Uh, Live radio. We had uh, Miriam in right. earlier, which yes. was lots of fun. Thanks for coming in, Miriam. I hope everybody has uh, gotten on to the uh, Wage Peace site, as we were uh, suggesting. Yeah. Uh, oh. We actually had a phone call straight away. Before Miriam had even left the studio, we had people ringing up to talk to her about what she was uh, she was advocating for. So that's a really good response. Thank you mm. so much. Yes. And uh, we've got uh, so much more to cover. Yes. I know you've been hard at it, uh, flogging the internet. I should say, I'm very impressed. I think that uh, the Facebook has recognised that uh, Environmental as Anything <laughs> is the only credible news outlet in Australia, so they've decided to let us stay up. Post news stories. So We're actually you... able to post news stories today. I'm, I'm confused. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's, it's, it only takes 24 hours for us to break our habits, Facebook. So, you know, you should watch yourselves, really. You don't <laughs> want to lose us. But, um, you know, so, yeah, there we go. The Facebook, uh, the, the Environmental as Anything Facebook page is still up and running. We shouldn't skite about it too loud. They might go after us. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, like have a um, – if, you, if you're if you looking for any links from the show, we'll uh, we'll try to make sure we get them up there for sure. today. Yes. So what have you got um, on your busy agenda, Naomi? Ah, well, I had a busy week in amongst all the rain, got – quite wet a few times uh, and um, um, uh, Cindy Roberts, local Weibull woman, has been um, looking at and protesting about a development happening in the Invercall Road area, a residential development. But there's some... It's interesting. We found out that through the process of talking to the developers that the creek and um, the the uh, the riparian zone next to the creek, which I looked up, it's about 30 metres altogether, um, is uh, currently under the developer and uh, will be handed back to council. But that's not true uh, from another point of view because at all times creeks are... Um, uh, prop, you know, crown land or, or sovereign land if you're mm. Aboriginal. Department of Water. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so they're not actually – but it, on paper the property line goes to the middle of the creek. Oh, okay. Yeah, so right. that's misleading for the owner and the developer because on paper yeah. they own it. But, but for us, we, we Cindy's camp down by the creek there. I won't name the creek because there's a um, an Aboriginal women's uh, uh, sacred site in the creek, uh, a beautiful birthing waterhole that um, Cindy was um, quite upset about and some koala trees with a spring, uh, a water spring springing up next to it within wow. the development area. Right. So um, Cindy Roberts uh, and the mayor, the new green mayor, we've got a green mayor right now, oh, good I on know. you, Vanessa. Vanessa Reckons, yes. Yes. Um, the mayor, an archaeologist, uh, who, a consultant to the developers, the site manager from the developers, the mayor and a few of us went down uh, with, uh, to back up Cindy Roberts talking to, um, talking around the issues. Uh, and I've, it's just, oh, this really makes me sick when they've got a, a big koala 
a big koala statue. It's quite tall. It's about three metres, two, three metres tall. Right. Uh, under one tree. They've left a koala tree there in the top of the development site. They've cleared the rest of the site. And there's two koala trees at the bottom, which we're currently finding out, um, two gum trees anyway, uh, that we're finding out if they're going to be protected or not. Cindy was quite concerned. I, we all were. We looked at them. They're, they're either shade, they're, they're native Australian trees. Just leave them be. Mm. So anyway, they may be on some private property. But so they've got a, a concrete koala. It's uh, <laughs> You know, they're likely to have a concrete Aboriginal somewhere at the back uh, with, with when you've got that kind of attitude, oh, surely. Oh, dear. Well, it just, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so good on Cindy, but spoke powerfully about um, the the main thing that came out of it was that the original uh, cultural heritage assessment was um, conducted with Aboriginal men, local men, and it's a women's site. And, and so that, that uh, Cindy's, um, you know, protesting in a direct line from her grandmother, grandmothers and ancestors and the spirit of the land for her was that sort of an issue. Yeah. Um, and it was a great experience to be down there looking, poking around in the creek with Cindy. I feel very privileged. Um, I've seen video of the of the uh, birthing pool, the water hole in the creek. It's beautiful, mm. beautiful. Not huge, but, you know, sizable and beautiful. So that was an interesting thing. Fantastic. I what, yeah. an, what an adventure. Sounds, uh, yeah, sounds amazing. And the other thing Cindy Roberts and I got along to this week was the Rouse County Council rescission motion. So when the Rouse County Council were meeting, uh, um, they were all up there. We got the live feed down onto the street and a bunch of people from Water Northern Rivers sat out and listened and... Um, I put posted up an Econet Daily article about the rescission motion. Uh, the essence of it is that three of the councillors who still want the dam don't want to let go of the land that's uh, gazetted for the dam, um, but they, that rescission motion was voted down. So, But they're going to persist with other rescission motions and try and get the dam back on the agenda. But, um, you know, Simon Richardson, Vanessa Eakins, um, or all the other five councillors spoke really strongly against mm. the dam. So that was great. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a strong community presence outside just to keep uh, monitoring that, That's wasn't right. It? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the Wilsons River peaked around midday today. So when you saw it swollen, it's mm. probably going down again now. Yes, it did look like it. it yes. was. Uh, but it, doesn't, it doesn't look like it's going to flood us now, but it, uh, it kept going the way it was. And I'm sure that, you know, we, we could be in some danger. Yes. I want to have a quick little word about um, the, disrupt, the Disrupting the Weapons Expo in June 2021 this year. I caught some um, activists uh, when I toured with the Bentley Effect movie around North Island New Zealand and a bit of the South Island. I made some activist and Maori activist friends over there. So I saw them posting about, um, you know, getting arrested and evading the police and all that sort of thing at that Weapons Expo. And oh. I was very proud. I was very <laughs> proud because it's one of the most terribly environmentally destructive and socially destructive things in the world is... Oh, it's pointlessly and, 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 and deliberately destructive, isn't mm. it? It's one of those things where, you know, war, what, who is it good for? <laughs> yes. Yeah, or what is it good for? Well, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, there was also some... Uh, I know we had Lydia. Mm. Lydia was keen to get on and speak to the, uh, the event for uh, the trains. Yes. Uh, but unfortunately my phone went dead and I haven't heard back from her, but we're going to read out the, uh, the, the details. Yes. Um, there's a series of meetings at, uh, for supporters of the return of rail to the Northern Rivers. There was, um, in March there's meetings in Bangalore and Mullumbimby. But this coming Wednesday the 24th of February, there's a rally for rail um, starting at the casino post office at 11am, after which they will walk through the CBD with banners and then back to the post office. You can hear about the new publicly owned railway company, Northern Rivers Rail Limited, 
Um, it's publicly registered to bring rail services back to our region. Um, please come along. And there'll be two public meetings soon. Bangalore Bolo, Wednesday the 10th of March at 6pm and Mullumbimby X Services Club, Wednesday the 17th of March at 6pm. Please come along and find out um, how more about our plans to save the tracks from being ripped up and to bring rail services back to the Northern Rivers in the not-too-distant future. Yep, and you can go to www.northernriversrail.com.au if you want to get more details on all of that. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks, Lydia, for bringing that to our attention. Sorry we couldn't get you on today. Another day. Yeah. I've got a couple of really nice um, good news stories. I thought we could uh, squeeze a few in. I always like a good news story. That's right. Um, I got a, uh, an email about Rainforest Rescue. So um, I love getting their updates. They have done work in our area. I remember a few years ago they had about they got up to about twenty thousand rainforest trees planted locally. Um, um, but their latest update in the last two years, Rainforest Rescue have purchased five more pristine rainforest blocks in the Daintree, planted over two hundred thousand trees, strengthened and renewed their partnership with the Jubal. Double Bean Aboriginal Corporation, who share the work in the uh, Rainforest Rescue Nursery. Um, the Jabalina people work on plant ID and help the help in the rainforest restoration projects. So um, I think that's pretty impressive. I love the Daintree. It's good to keep some rainforest going. Absolutely. No, they do, they do do good work. A, a little bit of good every day is how I always saw Rainforest Rescue. I used to work for them, actually. Yeah. Yeah, marvellous. Yeah. Marvellous. And... Uh, I don't know if you're aware of BirdLife Australia. I have mentioned it on the show before. They've purchased um, uh, the uh, station. Um, so I'll just have a go at that. Um, an Australian painted snipe. An Australian painted snipe was spotted in the Mangala wetlands in North Queensland, where BirdLife Australia purchased Mangala Station. In three years, the central lagoon area on the station has gone from little more than a damp, depression-filled damp depression full of agricultural weeds to a thriving wetland. Wetlands of the region are filled with comb-crested jacanas, white-browed crakes, magpie geese, plus honey eaters, trillers, bronze cuckoos and wood swallows in the surrounding country. And those birds I just mentioned all have specific varieties, specific species to that, to oh. the area of North Queensland. Wow. There have been more than 230 bird species recorded at Mangala in the last five years. Wow. What a beautiful thing. An amazing Isn't place. that quick though? That's incredible. Three years. Yeah. Mm. It's amazing what nature can do. It can bounce back so quick if we let it. That's right. Yes. So, happy days for the Australian painted snipes. Oh, they, they, sound, <laughs> they sound charming. I want to meet some. Oh, yes. No, the article waxes lyrical about them. Um, so, moving on to events, unless you've got a... Uh, oh, no, I've got one more thing. Oh, no, that's in the events. So, have you got anything? Oh, I'm full of full, full of full stuff. of things. Yeah. Like, okay. Would you want me to me to take over? No, no. I better do the events before we run out of time. <laughs> so tomorrow, um, there was the uh, third third Saturday of the month is the uh, retro suburbia event starting at ten a.m. So we've missed that. So keep that in mind for next month. Uh, tomorrow is the really, really, really free market. Really, really, really free. Totally market. so free. You can just pick up stuff <laughs> that people don't want anymore and you can take stuff along that you'd like to give away. Um, and that's 9am to 11am at the Lismore Community Gardens. Fun. Yeah, so that'll be good. Yeah. And then on Monday, the 22nd of February at 1.40pm, 
<laughs> specifically. Monday, 22nd of February, 1.40pm, people. Um, Hold your breath. The uh, Green Recovery Now petition will be introduced into the House of Representatives by Tasmanian Independent MP Andrew Wilkie. Ah. And they've um, they've emailed me a link to watch Andrew Wilkie present the petition. I remember signing that a, a few weeks ago. Yep. Um, so the evidence is clear that a renewable-led recovery from the COVID pandemic will lead to more jobs and low emissions, yes. etc. So well, good on Andrew Wilkie for getting that up. Andrew Wilkie for keeping up the good fight. Yeah. It's like I was saying before to uh, Janelle Safford, we need a koala-led recovery. That's and, oh, and so it's, true. It's not, it's not joking. Not no, joking. Not joking. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, so they're the real... There's an event, um, a real-life event, Wild Things. It's a great activist film. I can't wait to get along and see it. For, um, 25th of February at 6.30pm. So get along to the Starcourt Theatre. Probably good if you book your ticket online through the Starcourt Theatre. Um, and there's a... So they're the main... Um, Is that Wild Things? Wild Things. Yes, yes, yes. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. That yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, and good on the Star Court for putting that on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Star Court does great work. Yeah. And then, the, so that's the main real life events the market tomorrow, the film um, on the 25th. Um, and I think there's some really cool um, online events, like there's decolonisation gatherings um, and then Extinction Rebellion have popped up with a range of really great online events, um, non-violence training for civil disobedience and direct action. That one's on Thursday the 25th at 6pm. Um, Rise Up Singing, celebrating the music of resistance. That's a, that's a fest because they're having a festival of civil disobedience. Oh, yeah, so I love singing, especially a protest song. So, so sing, singing and civil di- disobedience all in one package, thats uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yes, but the cherry on the cake, according to Daisy Nutty, is the talk by Roger Hallam from the new anti-political party Burning Pink presents <laughs> Reasons to be Cheerful. Um, so it's a Zoom link. Why, what is Burning Pink and why is it necessary? Sick of being ignored by politicians? So... <laughs> Yeah, so reasons to be cheerful. That's good in a, oh, on a dying planet. Yeah, yeah, it raises a laugh. <laughs> it gets people feeling a bit brighter. Yeah. It's a bright colour pink, you know. Yes. It might be related to the invisible pink unicorn. It's more the pink boat that they, they um, one of the first oh, lock on, mass right. lock on okay. devices that they had that really yeah. blocked the streets of London. Yeah. So. But I still think that's related to the invisible pink unicorn. Oh, definitely. Anyway, you know. Yeah. And another great online event by them is How to Talk to Children About the Climate and Ecological Crisis, mm. an online event on February the 28th. Important stuff. Yeah. Got to be able to talk to the kids, tell them what's going on. They've got questions. They can see it happening around they can, them. They can. Yes. Teach them about nature. Yep. Yeah. Give them, give them some resilience. Um, I think Did you hear about uh, the scuttlebutt that Gladys, Gladys might be retiring? It's, uh, it's the, uh, the unruly scenes as removalists arrive for Premier Gladys Berejiklian by Alex Mitchell from Pearls and Irritations. And uh, the recent actions from New South Wales Treasurer Dominic Perrottet would suggest an imminent reshuffle aimed squarely at the Premier's office, despite asserting she is not leaving in March. New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian has been elbowed out of the way by her current Treasurer, who's behaving as if he has been sworn in as the state's 46th Premier. Hmm. Well, 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting developments yeah. in, uh, in Macquarie Street. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, and there's a couple of articles from uh, logging to resume in bushfire-affected forests on New South Wales' south coast despite environmental warning. The EPA warns Forestry Corporation of New South Wales that the Forestry Corporation could face regulatory action after accusing it of walking away from negotiations. So that's that's one to watch. There's mm. a Guardian article about that. There's a Sydney Morning Herald article about that. We want the EPA to win, of course. Oh, absolutely. Go EPA. Go EPA, yeah. yeah. But uh, you know that's right. We were actually we led off with the show today, thanks to uh, uh, to to, to uh, a, a listener who sent in a link, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting story. It certainly, uh, it goes with this uh, with all of the stories that we did cover today with uh, with Susie Russell and uh, the the bushfire, you know, that's recovery right. scamming. Yes, and it's all it's all a bit on the nose. Yeah, uh, in, in uh, Macquarie Street, the Berejiklian government is. Uh, a bit wobbly. Yes. Uh, well, and in relation to rorts, I posted a Sydney uh, criminal lawyer's um, article, a blog really, about um, Peter Dutton uh, pork barrelling federal funds and giving out grants um, in relation to uh, his whim rather than, you know, more needs-based uh, grant funding. So, yeah. yeah. So it's happening on a federal level too. Yeah, no, that's right. And they never saw a bucket of money. They didn't like the libs, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah couldn't have, what's, what is a bucket of money for after all? Giving to your mates, that's what it's oh, for, isn't apparently, it? Apparently, apparently. I didn't realise that the, the way they hand out funding was so loose. Well, it's not supposed to be, It's no. not supposed no, to no, be. No, 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 they, they, they are, that's why they call them rorts. Yeah, yeah. definitely rorting, yeah. Yeah. yes. Well, on another note, I've got an event here, I forgot, I'm mentioning it well in advance, um, the Northern Rivers Wildlife Carers. I, I'm, um, we also have, um, okay, so they have an intro to rehabilitation uh, rescue and Rehabilitation of Native Wildlife, Sunday the 14th, 9am to 3pm. Um, it's at the, the Department of Prime Industries office in Wallingbar. There's a charge, $15 for members, 35 for no, non-members. I'm going to post up where you email training at wildlifecarers.com um, to get into, to, to book into that great little intro to rescue and rehabilitation. Fantastic. For wildlife. Well done. Well, that's, uh, that sounds like about a wrap to me. Awesomeness. Well done. That's uh, good work again. Thank yeah. you so much for bringing uh, to our attention all of the good stuff that's going on in the local area. Yes. We really appreciate all the work you're doing there at the Lismore Environment Centre. Yes. Fantastic crew of volunteers. We're still going. Come and volunteer for the centre, people, if you're looking for something productive to do with your time. Please do. The Lismore Environment Centre needs you. You could do a lot worse. Thanks, Sean. All right. Thank you, Naomi. We'll see you again soon. That was Naomi Shine. Chair of the Lismore Environment Centre and uh, just shining a bit of light on us all. That's it. That's it for Environmental as Anything for another week. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's great to have your company every week. We really appreciate your feedback, your requests, your uh, your contributions of all kinds and even just your, uh, your, your, your quiet listening in the corner if that's all you're able to do. Really, it's good to have you here. It's good to be here with you. We'll be back in a week from 2 to 5 next Saturday. Tell your friends to join us. Uh, invite them through our Facebook page. We, uh, we like people to, uh, to join us. Uh, if, you don't, uh, wanna, if you can't join us next week or even if you can, our podcast is online uh, all the time. You can always download the latest episodes. And we are fortunate to be, uh, have slipped under the radar of Facebook's uh, uh, fatwa against news. 
So you'll be, uh, you can actually check out our Facebook page. Anyway, be kind to yourselves, be gentle with each other, and remember we're all in this together. Now to take us out with his new track called Sleep Australia Sleep. He's an Aussie icon joined by Alice Keith and Simon Nugent. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Paul Kelly. for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental As Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future we're hand in hand